1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's look at the first um, three verses. Verse 1 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The title of today's message is Live Expectantly. We should be living with that constant expectation that Christ can come back for the church at any moment. But I really want us to read the last verse of this section. Look at verse 11, because this is God's intent. This is Paul's intent in writing this. He says, therefore. Now, when you see the word therefore, he goes, because of these reasons. So because of all the things that we are going to look at, Paul says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. The truth that we're going to look at today should be comforting. And the word edify means to build up. It should build up our faith and our confidence in God even more and more what we're going to talk about today. And I love it because it's sandwiched between another section. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 18. After we looked at the rapture, he said, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These two the things that we're going to be looking at, what we looked at last week and what we're going to look at today, actually are tied in together. The rapture and the day of the Lord. They're closely connected. And in this portion of scripture, Paul makes several contrasts between the believers and non-believers, between Christians and non-Christians. And so in verses 1 through 3, we see Christians know but non-Christians don't know. How many of you would love to know the future? I do. <laughs> I would love to know the future. Like, maybe some of you want to know what your job's going to be. Some of you are like, who's my husband? <laughs> or who's my wife? You're maybe thinking, what's for lunch after service today? I want to know. We want to know the future, right? That's why there's all these palm readers here. Show me your palm and I'll read your future. Don't do that. That's garbage. Tarot cards, garbage also. The only one who can predict the future is God. See, God tells us the future. That's what prophecy is. It's him revealing the future before it happens. All other religions do not have this. This is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions, is that our God can predict the future with 100% accuracy. The weatherman can't do that, or the weatherwoman. No other religion, no other God can do what our God can do. Look at this. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. God is on the throne, and he will bring out the future that he wants. See, as believers, guess what? You and I have the privilege of knowing. We looked at, like last week, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, because ignorant is without knowledge. 
Knowledge empowers. When you know how to read and write, it takes you further on in life. When you know these things about the future, it should give us hope and live confidently for the Lord. Non-believers, check this out, do not know the future. They don't know what's coming. They don't know the Antichrist is coming. They don't know the rapture is coming, and they are going to be surprised and caught off guard. Verse 1 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. Paul's short time in Thessalonica, those three weeks are possibly a little bit longer, he taught them well. He taught them about the return of Christ for the church, the rapture, and other prophetic matters and events. Paul says, I don't need to tell you these things anymore. The times and the seasons. Now this phrase, the time and seasons, is a phrase mentioned several times in Scripture. It's referring to prophetic future events taking place before the day of the Lord. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says, And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. I love this verse. You know why? Because Daniel was taken as a 14-year-old away from his homeland. His education changed. His language changed. His name changed. All these things that the enemy wants to do to all of us. And in a wicked environment, he was able to survive. Not only that, he was able to thrive. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And this dream troubled him. But all of his palm readers, all the future tellers in Babylon couldn't tell him the dream. Daniel said, give me a little while because my God discerns dreams in the future. And this is what he said to King Nebuchadnezzar. He, referring to God, changes the times and the seasons. He is the one who puts things in place in different prophetic events, future things that will take place. I love the next thing. He says, he removes kings and raises them up. Every person in power around the world, God has placed there. We might be wondering, why in the world did you give us that president? Or why didn't we get that one? Or why is this person reigning in this country? God has a plan and he's working it out not according to our will, but according to his will. He changes, he removes, and he gives. These believers were anxious about the future events. And maybe the future makes you anxious. You get a lot of anxiety about what's going to take place. Paul says, no, as believers, the future shouldn't cause us anxiety. It should cause anticipation in our lives, this expectation this excitement that we're going to see Jesus at any moment. Imagine if he came back right now. That would have been so cool. <laughs> we were like in heaven in this moment. Imagine. This is supposed to bring anticipation, not anxiety. In verse 2, he says, For you yourselves know perfectly. That word perfectly means accurate or complete. He goes, you know this. Some of you know about the future, about the rapture, about end times events. I want to read a quote to you that I read in a book that really encouraged me. This guy, Leroy Imes, he said, We were not left to our imaginations about these things. For we might have dreamed up 
all sorts of theories, but God in his mercies has turned the light on. He has chosen to reveal to us the great mysteries of the universe, the great mysteries of prophecy and how the end will happen. Why? Why do you suppose he will do that? Because it is in his nature to keep his people informed. God wants us to know. It is his way of doing things. He made known his way to us. God wants you to know. He wants you to be informed. Now, I'm curious. What do you guys think? What do you believe God wants us to be informed about? What do you think God wants us to know? I'm asking you guys a question. What do you think God wants us to know? David? I think the main thing is he wants us to know Absolutely. He wants to, us to know, not only intellectually, but experientially, that he loves us with an everlasting love. And a love that we can't even comprehend the height, the width, the depth, and the length of it. He wants us to know that love. 100% correct. That is so true. God, he could have hidden himself from all creation and says, you will never know me. He says, no, I want humanity to know me. That's why I've given you my word. That's why I've given you teachers. That's why I've given you pastors. That's why I've given you the Holy Spirit so that you can know who I am. And that's what Jeremiah 9, chapter 23 and 24 says. He says, don't glory in your wealth and your riches. Don't glory in your status and your power. Don't glory in any of this. He goes, what you should glory in and treasure in is that you know God and you understand him. Isn't that cool? We have a God that we can know personally and understand personally. What else? That's a, there's paradise. There's heaven. That this life isn't meaningless and then all of a sudden we die and we cease to exist. No, there is a heaven and there is a hell. He wants us to know both. Because by not choosing God, we are choosing the other. What else does God want us to know? That he loves us. He loves us. Absolutely. He also wants us to know the future. That's why he reveals it. But guess what? He wants you to know the past. If God in his sovereignty and his ideas and whatever he wanted decided to never include the book of Genesis, you and I would never know how creation was formed. He didn't have to do that. He wanted to. He goes, the world wasn't created with evolution. God created it. He spoke it into existence. He formed everything by the word of his power. And then he filled everything with living creatures. And his chief creation was human beings. You and I made in the image of God. See, on the other hand, Satan wants to keep people in the dark. He doesn't want you to know. You know why? Because he doesn't want you to know that there's a heaven and hell. He doesn't want you to know that God created the universe, that it just all of a sudden these cosmic chemicals and things, bam, and we evolved from monkeys. No, that ain't true. There is no historical evidence for that. There is no geological evidence for that. And so 
with evolution, we, they say we started out here and we're growing and we're progressing as a society. Listen, nothing's changed for the last 6,000 years. We still struggle with the same sins. We still have the same problem. We are not getting better. We are getting worse. See, evolution goes like this and it goes upward. Creation starts at perfection and it goes downward because Adam and Eve sinned and therefore sin and evil entered into the world. That's why there's cancer. That's why there's suffering. That's why there's all these things. God wants us to know this. Satan wants you to be in the dark. And what God wants us to know is that the day of the Lord. Now, this is an important phrase in scripture. The word day does not mean a literal 24-hour period. It actually is a period of time longer than a day. Now, to understand this, we got to go back to the Old Testament and look at where it's used. And this is what we call using the Bible to interpret the Bible. When you don't understand a portion of scripture, like Revelation, you use the book of Daniel to help you understand Revelation. We use scripture to interpret scripture. And when we're talking about prophecy, telling the future, when God spoke in the past, there was this near fulfillment where it happened recently, but then there was a far fulfillment which would happen in the future. I'll point this out. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah is in the middle of the Bible. If you, you go towards the left and you flip past Matthew, past Amos, past um, Ezekiel, past Jeremiah, and you hit Isaiah. If you've hit Proverbs or Psalms, you've gone too far. Hold your finger in Thessalonians 2. Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 11. If you can't find it, no worries, just listen. This is what it says. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and I will come, I will come as destruction from the Lord. It will come as a destruction from the Lord. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another and their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. The stars of heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cease in its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Doesn't that sound scary? Reading through that, this is actually talking about Babylon. When Babylon came and conquered Israel, that God was going to punish them. But it also is talking about the future, when God will punish the whole entire world for their evil crimes and sins against the Lord himself. And it mentions the day of the Lord twice there. And it kind of describes this judgment that comes upon. And so if you're taking notes, the day of the Lord refers to a special period where God intervenes supernaturally to judge the world or judge a city or a nation. Ze uh, Zephaniah chapter 
1 verse 14 says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day is bitter, and the mighty shall cry out. I like that last phrase, the mighty. I picture the rock. These, these mighty guys who we think are men, they're going to whine and cry like babies because of how horrible it will be during that time. And they're going to wish that they would have listened to the believers. They're going to wish they would have gotten saved. And some will not repent. Their hearts will get hardened. When will this take place? Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you haven't already. When Paul talks about this day of the Lord, this is the final and the last day of the Lord, the last time God will judge the world. And this is called the tribulation period, taking place here, as you can see. There's two halves to it. The day of the Lord will begin when the rapture takes place, when we are caught up and taken into heaven with the Lord, then the day of the Lord begins from that moment all the way to the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's God intervening supernaturally in creation, doing what He is going to do. Punishing. And then bringing about His rule and reign in the thousand-year reign. It says, this day will come as a thief in the night. A thief in the night. It's a very good description. Because thieves, they don't text you and be like, hey, I'm going to come rob you guys today. <laughs> at 1 a.m. in the morning, I'll be at your house, and I'm going to rob you. They don't send you an email. They don't call you on the phone. They don't ring your doorbell and be like, hey, I'm here to rob you guys. <laughs> Take out a gun. Give me your money. <laughs> they don't notify you. They try to do it when you least expect it. Maybe they'll, map, they'll case your house and see it first. See, a thief by its him or her nature, they will come at an unexpected time. Let me share a story from my personal life. Seven years ago, me and Andy, one of the high school leaders, and before I was doing junior high ministry, I was serving in the high school ministry. And me and Andy were like, dude, let's take some um, high schoolers to the snow. So we filled up our cars, um, and we're going to go to the snow. We took Vinny, Steven, some other people, and went to the snow. And we pulled off to the side, threw some snowballs and different things like that. Someone brought tortillas, so we're eating tortillas. It was a good time. And we did it for a couple of hours, and then we were about to leave. And like, hey, let's pull off one more time. So we pull off to the side of the road, and there's like this ravine. And we go to play in the ravine, hang out, and use the sleds. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, let's go on a hike. So we start hiking up this hill. And all of a sudden, I look down at my car, and I see someone pull up behind me. I was like, I don't know that car. And this guy gets out, has a bright neon jacket. I was like, what is he doing? I was like, it's not a cop. I'm just watching from a distance. And all of a sudden, he kind of looks around, and he looks inside my car. I was like, no. Is he? No, that can't be. Really? He looks inside, looks inside and then tries the handle and it doesn't work. I was like, dude, that guy's trying to steal something from my car or steal my car. I was like, I ain't gonna have this. And in my flesh, I was like, let's fight. I am ready, so I start running down the hill. I didn't wanna yell and scream and make my presence known because I wanted to get in this guy's face. Because I was like, if he's robbing me, I'm wondering how many other people he's robbed and taken advantage of. And thieves need to be punished, right? 
in here? All right. So I wanted to go fight this guy. And all of a sudden, as I'm running down, one of the high schoolers says, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, dude, you shouldn't have said that. And I was like, I was like, get to the car. And so the guy like looks, and he actually tried to take off a part of my car to get in. And he hops back into his car. We all got, get into my car and Andy's car. And I was like, I tried to chase him down into the city to follow him and to find him because I wanted to, in my flesh, I wanted to <laughs> take him out. And I was, I was upset. I was so heated. But I never thought it would happen to me. I was like, no, I, no one's going to rob my car, steal my car. But it happens. I bet you it's possibly happened to a lot of your parents. My dad got his car stolen off church property over 20 years ago. My mom had her purse stolen. My dad had his tools stolen out from his car in front of our house. Thousands upon thousands of tools in, in dollars also. That's the thing about a thief. They come at when you least expect it. So the point of the story here is that this day is going to come upon the world suddenly like a thief in the night. First, or Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. And the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. The earth and everything on it will be found to be deserving of judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. He says, this is the future. You and I should live holy and godly lives in light of what's going to take place. Now, I want you to see at verse 3, it says, For when they said peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Please look at the words he uses. They, them, and they. He is not referring to us or we as believers. He's referring to non-believers in this moment. He says the unsaved world has a false sense of security. They shout out peace and safety. Yes, everything's good. But then sudden destruction comes upon them. And I want you to see this in the chart that we've created. There will be three and a half years of peace where the Antichrist will come on and everyone will think he's the savior of the world. He's going to establish a one-world order, a one-world currency, and everyone's going to be like, dude, you've created peace for us. Thank you. And then halfway through the tribulation period, that's where God really pours out his wrath in the trumpet judgments and the bull judgments where he punishes the sea. He destroys the ships. He turns the sea into blood. All the animals in the ocean start to die off. The fresh water streams are polluted so you don't have fresh water to drink. He says, this time will come upon them suddenly. How many of you guys like to scare people? I love to scare people. It's so much fun. It, I, it just, it's exhilarating. <laughs> Last night, my little brother came into town, uh, actually this weekend, kind of a surprise visit. And so we were like at Rite Aid or somewhere, I don't know. And he was like, hey, where's Josh calling? Like, he's like, where's Josh? And so I, I hide behind the corner. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get him so good. And I, as soon as he comes around the corner, I go, oh! And he literally like, goes like this to punch me. He was about to punch me because he got like so scared. 
Um, and it was so funny to watch him do that. There was one time I scared a high school girl between over here in the hallway, and she was coming around the corner, and I went, oh, dude, I had to dodge her punch, because she went, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> so be careful when you're scaring people. But the thing about scaring somebody, you need the element of surprise, correct? The element of surprise is the best part. It's the anticipation. They have no idea when it's coming because they don't know. The world will not know when Christ comes. And they're going to be like, oh. I think it's very interesting when people can get scared even though they see someone coming. My sister scares scare me all the time. Your sister scares you all the time? I know other people in this room and outside of this room where they can see someone coming and they see the person and when they're scared, they jump too. I'm like, dude, you saw that person. You shouldn't be scared because you have knowledge of it. And that's the thing. You and I as believers, we have knowledge that Jesus is coming back. So we shouldn't be scared. We shouldn't be anxious. We should live confidently for Jesus. That's the purpose here. And the world will be surprised. As laborers uh, in pain with a pregnant woman, he says it's going to come upon them. Mark chapter 13, verse 8 says, For nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquake in, earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. Now, that word sorrow means birth pains. When a woman goes into labor, the contractions start, but they're farther apart. And all of a sudden, they speed up and speed up and speed up and get worse and worse and worse. That's the idea with the end times, with the tribulation. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And it's going to be painful. But this is what Jesus said. He goes, this is just the beginning. We see these things taking place today, right? Nations and kingdoms fighting. Ukraine and Russia fighting. Earthquakes. The earthquake in Syria and Turkey. It says that diseases that will increase. Hello, COVID. All these other diseases. These things are already taking place. That means Jesus is around the corner, literally. He can come at any moment in time, right now. Are we ready? The idea behind the sorrows and the birth pains is that Jesus is going to usher in a new age. And then verses 4 and 5, follow along with me. We see the contrast between light and darkness. But you, brethren are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. But you are light, all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Here, Paul tells us who we are as believers. He goes, we shouldn't be surprised when this day comes. We have knowledge that Jesus will return at any moment, but it will surprise the world. We are not in the dark. In verse 5, he says, you are, you are sons of the light, sons of the day. This is who we are as believers. In 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I like this because we once were in darkness. If you're a non-Christian today, you're sitting in darkness. You don't know. But if you are a believer, you've been delivered out of the darkness and you have the light of Christ placed in your life. That means we are not called as believers to walk with being scared or uncertainty. We are called to live confidently for the Lord because we have the light of Christ. 
The world lives in uncertainty, in a fogginess, in confusion, and in gloominess. We are not of the night, as this day should overtake us. The day of the Lord is pictured as a time of night or darkness. Amos chapter 5, verse 20 says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? If you guys actually read Revelation, it says in one of the judgments that a third of the sun will not shine. There will be a third less of daylight. There will be a third less of moonlight. And then all of a sudden, they'll get darker and darker. A third of the sea will be turned into blood. A third of the ocean animals will die. A third of the ships will be destroyed. This is going to be a horrible day. Verses 6 and 8 said, it talks about those that are asleep and drunk and those that are awake and sober. Follow along. Verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, uh, the helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, the word therefore says because of these things, the coming of the Lord, because we are sons and daughters of light, he says, let us not sleep. Now, this word sleep does not mean, it's not talking about death like in chapter 4. It's meaning those who are spiritually or careless. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about godly things. He says, don't sleep as others do. My question to us this morning is, are you asleep? Not physically, <laughs> but are you asleep in your Christian faith? Are you asleep and you're not awake? We are called to be awake. He says, watch and be sober. The word watch means to be on alert, to be awake. to be open. We should be aware, looking around every corner. Is Jesus around this corner? As if someone was going to scare us. <laughs> Is Jesus going to be here tomorrow? Is Jesus going to be here the day after? Are we awake? Are we attentive? Revelation 16 verse 15 is a warning to the church. He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. Listen, if you come and you're asleep when Jesus is here, that's not good. You want to be awake. You want to have your eyes wide open and saying, let's go, Jesus. I'm ready to be with you. The word be sober means self-control or sober-minded. Our world loves alcohol. Maybe some of you do as well. The Bible says stay away from that stuff. It doesn't help. It only hinders. And God doesn't want us to be under the control of anything else. No other substance. Not alcohol, not drugs, not even technology. He says the only power we should be brought under is the power of the Holy Spirit. That we should be filled with the Holy Spirit and not filled with other substances controlling our lives. To be alert. And the reasons we should do this is because Jesus is coming back. The end is near. And we are living in the last moments of time. Romans chapter 13 verses 11 through 14 gives us a heavy warning. Listen with this. And do this knowing the time 
that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For your salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reviling or in drunkenness, not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In other words, it's game time. We are in a war, a spiritual war. It's, it's time to take off the kid glove, guys. It's time to take off the training wheels. We are in a battle and we got to treat it like one. Let's put on this armor. Let's go to town. Let's pray for people's salvation and that they would get saved. We still serve a God of miracles. Verse 7 says, those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. The world sins at night. All, most of the sins take place at night because they want to hide it, and they love the darkness, it says. These days are going to be like the days of Noah. And I love the days of Noah. You know why? Because Noah was told about something that had never been experienced in that world at that moment. God said, hey, Noah, guess what? It's going to rain. And Noah's like, God, I got a question. What's rain? Because in Genesis, the, the earth was watered from this mist that came up from the ground. So he was told about something that they've never seen before. So when Noah went to go preach to the people, which it says that he did, he preached to them, and guess what? They laughed at them. They're like, what a loser. What is rain? Don't you know the earth gets watered from the mist? And they laughed at him because they didn't see what was coming. God informed Noah. God has informed us today. And we are called to warn the rest of the world of what is about to come and take place so that they can be saved and don't have to go through it. And in that day of Noah, they were all getting drunk. They were living life up. They were partying. They were having a good time. And then all of a sudden, like a thief comes, the rain started to come. And they saw it drip from the sky for the first time. And all of a sudden, the water started to get higher and higher and higher. And families with their kids drowned. It was a painful thing. It was God punishing the world for their sin. God's not going to flood the earth again. The next time he judges the world, it's going to be with fire. And then he says in verse 8, he says, Let us who are of the day be sober. Let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now, question, what does the breastplate protect? The chest, okay. What exactly in your chest is it protecting? Your heart and all your vital organs. You got your spleen, you got your liver, you got your lungs. It's protecting everything that is important. But most importantly, your heart. The Bible says guard your heart because out of your heart flows and springs the issues of life. He says guard it. The way we guard it is by our faith in God and our love for God and love for people. When we love God absolutely and we put our trust in him absolutely, it'll guard our hearts from the lies of the enemy, from conforming to the rest of the world. We will have this armor on. 
And it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is God's armor that he's given to us. And this is the helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, what does the helmet protect? Your head. Absolutely. But it doesn't protect your eyes because your eyes are usually exposed in a helmet, and especially a, a Roman's helmet. Maybe your ears might be exposed or covered. Your mouth's kind of exposed. It's not protecting your mouth. It's not protecting your eyes. It's protecting your mind. Your mind, God cares about. Your, God cares about your thoughts. He cares about what you think. And our minds need to be protected because every spiritual battle we fight is in our minds. And we can't use fleshly things. We have to use spiritual tools, which is prayer and God's word. These things are powerful. And not only that, these defensive weapons that we're talking about the breastplate and a helmet, Paul doesn't even mention a sword here. He's like, you're defenseless. You're, you're literally only to defend yourself, actually. You have no offensive weapons. But it says here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our only two offensive weapons is the sword and prayer. Now, we are not supposed to use God's word to beat people up and go, and like slice them up. That's not how we should use the sword. We should use it in love, graciously caring for other people, sharing with them the truth of God's word. But listen, God wants your mind to be protected. He wants you to know that you are saved or unsaved. He wants you to have that assurance. I can tell you, if I get hit by a car today, I'm going to heaven. If something bad were to happen to me, I'm going to heaven. Not because of my works, because I can't save myself. Trust me, my righteousness is gross. God says my righteousness are filthy rags to him. It's his finished work on the cross that saved me. Listen, we live in an evil, wicked world. I was watching the news the other day and there was a car chase, and this guy went from Chino, like down by the 71, all the way to um, Orange County, and he got out of his car at one point, started shooting at the cops on the freeway. Thankfully, nobody got hit, and no other people got hit as well. But listen, we don't know when our time has come. I just found out last night that a good friend of ours who pastors a church, Mike Urcioli, has passed away. He's been battling cancer and has finally gone to be with the Lord, not suffering anymore. He's in the presence of his Savior, gazing on his glory. And so, one second. And so, also, we have, my parents know a friend who went to go to get dental work done. He got Novocaine shot into his mouth to get a cavity filled. And he died there in the dentist chair. They don't know how. You don't know when your time is coming. And I'm not trying to put fear into your heart. I am not trying to make you scared. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Get your minds ready. In verses 9 through 11, we see salvation and judgment. It says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and 
that whether we awake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. In other words, there is an appointment for us believers. And we, our appointment is salvation. The rapture is coming and we're going. The appointment for non-believers at the moment, unless they choose to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, is judgment in the day of the Lord. In verse 10, when he says, he talks about this word sleep. He says, whether we awake or sleep, that is referring to dying in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I want you to see these comparisons and these contrasts on the screen. There's two sides. If you're a believer, you're in the knowing. You know what's going on. You're in the light. You're sober. You're awake. And you have salvation. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't know. You're in darkness. Described as being a drunk and sleeping and judgment awaits. Make the decision today to follow the Lord. Now, I want to encourage you believers, if you are saved in here, you and I have a responsibility to grab as many people as possible to take them with us to heaven, to grab them out of the fire, to love them and say, here's the truth of God's word. And it's not our job to save people. Our job is to speak the truth and God does the saving. It is Jesus Christ who saves from beginning to end. And that's the, for, that's the hope that we have to look forward to. We can live with this confident expectation, with this excitement, where we don't have to fear, we don't have to have anxiety, but we can look to the future with hope and joy on our face and says, let's go, Jesus. Let's do this. Use me, God. Fill me. Let's save people together.